Welcome to The Lowdown, KMXT's show dedicated to giving you the up-to-date information we have available on the COVID-19 outbreak and how it's impacting life on Kodiak Island. The Lowdown will focus on facts as provided to us by local and state officials. During this edition of the show, we give you access to local physicians and public health experts with information on COVID-19 and recommendations related to it. If you have a question for our guests, please email it to lowdown at kmxt.org or call KMXT at 486-3181. It is a pretty lowdown today. Good morning. It is Wednesday, a lovely snowy Wednesday. Another chance for you to sit in on a fresh new edition of the Dock of the Rock. Cases have been going down in the state and locally since January, with only 58 cases reported statewide yesterday, only one locally, and with no new deaths in the state. There's a mere 35 people in the state now in the hospital with COVID, uh, five on ventilators, so our medical capacity seems to be in great shape. Nearly 20% of Alaskans have now gotten at least one dose of a vaccine, and we're leading the nation in the percentage of residents vaccinated. Some areas of the state, however, remain at high alert. Some are in yellow, and some places like us are finally back at green. Is it a calm before the storm? Uh, what are the new? What's new on the COVID front from the medical community's perspective? That's what we'll talk about today. If you have questions, we have one, two actually lined up already. Um, call 486-3181 or shoot us an email, lowdown at kmxt.org, and we'll have the doctors talk about it before uh, the conclusion of the show if we can. Uh, today, we may have Dr. Smith from Providence joining in the conversation in a little bit, but on the line right now are Dr. Shanna Theobold from the Kodiak Ambulatory Care Clinic and Dr. Curtis Mortensen from the Kodiak Community Health Center again. Thanks very much for joining us this morning. Uh, let's just r- jump in right now and, and talk a little bit about, you know, how well we're doing with our vaccine clinics. We spent a lot of time on vaccine clinics last year, last week. We got a lot of questions about it and, uh, a lot of compliments to both of you, uh, actually all three of you from last week, for covering what was available, when things were available, who was um, eligible to get a vaccine. So we went into these vaccine clinics last week. Can you give us a little brief on how we did and how we're doing? Yeah, um, I can say that um, we, um, at the Community Health Center, we were able to give out uh, pretty much our full February allotment of the vaccine. So that means that we were given, I believe, 240 vaccines for this month, in addition to second doses from the last month. Um, and so we were able to give that all out last week. Um, I know that the uh, I spoke with uh, Jason Bishop, um, who is running the sort of the uh, statewide efforts, and they, they ran the EOC clinic that was downtown over the weekend. And I believe they vaccinated 255 people um, uh, in that clinic. I've heard that Walmart is was able to get through those 400 doses, but I, I'm not sure. I don't have any confirmation with that. But um, so that's a lot of doses, and I don't even know. I have no idea where Canada's at. Um, I was hoping Dr. Jones would be here to kind of give us an update on where they're at. Um, but uh, you know, I actually have a a, a call or a text into uh, Jason because he's kind of tracking this from a community-wide standpoint about what our numbers are overall to see if he does know. Um, and I think it's getting a little harder to calculate because there's so many different pools because there's the Indian Health Service pool, there's the state pool, there's the federal pool, which is where the Walmart's getting their vaccine. And then there's the uh, VA clinic, which they had a VA vaccination clinic this past week too. And I have no idea how many people are vaccinated there, but um, I do really appreciate the community response. I mean, I, I think that um, what we found is that um, people being aware that there was a supply was a really good thing. Cause I think a lot of people think that it's just a scarcity. And also I, I think that, um, and in, in Kodiak, we're lucky that it's not as much of a scarcity. Um, but then I think also um, making sure people are educated on who is eligible is a big deal. Um, because I, I think a lot of people don't know they're eligible. So. How did your clinic go, Shanna? Yeah. So we, um, our our allotment was to give second doses 
and we are hosting a clinic this Saturday from 9 to 2 for people to get that second dose. And there's about 300 people that will be um, getting that. As far as first doses, I think we just gave them scattered throughout the week. And um, yeah, the other clinics had kind of more of that first dose allotment, which is great as long as we get Kodiak vaccinated. And I read in the Kodiak Daily Mirror, I forget what date this um, this was from, but they said about a third of Kodiak Islanders age 16 and older, so that's more of the adult numbers of population, have been vaccinated. So I think, I mean, we're doing excellent here, which is exciting, really good news. So from the statewide perspective, though, when when is our, do we have waiting lists for people that aren't already tiered, you know, that the tier isn't open for how many, how many people are on your lists? Yeah, I don't, I don't necessarily have the number of people on the list. Um, I do know that um, I think all the clinics are keeping lists. Um, and um, I also know that um, at the clinic they have, I, I spoke again to Jason uh, Bishop, um, who's kind of running sort of the EOC, sort of the, the effort there with the drive-through clinics down at the Harbor Master office. And he said that they turned at least 60 people away um, that were not meeting criteria. And so um, so there's definitely people out there that are wanting it, that are designed to get the vaccine that can't get it yet. And um, we're hoping that that changes soon. Um, you know, with, uh, with March coming up, I, I don't think we really fully know uh, what the state is gonna be doing as far as that allotment. Um, uh, but well, as far as who's gonna be eligible for it, uh, we kind of know what our allotment is, but we don't know who's going to be eligible at that point in time. We still got a week to go until then. So you know how many doses we're due to get next month? Is that what you're saying? We do. And, uh, you know, there's there's a committee uh, that works on, you know, how to, how to divvy that up. And that's, again, led by sort of uh, you know, this, this group that um, works with the state kind of in our, in our local community uh, group. And every clinic is on that are on these calls that are happening pretty much every week so so for age group do, do we have a, a good sense of how many of the people in the medical community and how many people in the 65 and older group are have already been vaccinated i i don't have a, a most recent update but like what we were um this was like from a few weeks back when we were just when we the week before um, they decreased the, the, they increased the tiers. So this was when 65 and older were the only people we were vaccinating in healthcare providers. And at, at that time, we had a thousand people vaccinated in that age group. And there was uh, roughly 1500, 65 and older people in the community. And then that was before that weekend, which was the weekend that the ambulatory care clinic and us both had our, and, and the, the EOC, all had their drive-through clinics the same day. And that was to hit 65 and older people. And I would I would venture to say that there was at least a few hundred people vaccinated on those days. And so I think that um, we're probably at, my guess would be around like 1,200, at, that's probably a conservative estimate out of 1,500 uh, 65 and older patients, which is pretty good coverage. Uh, what we were finding is that the people we were calling that hadn't gotten it in that age group didn't want it. And so I think that um, probably most people 65 and older that haven't gotten it most likely don't really want it because I think it's been pretty well advertised. But if you are 65 and older and you want it, then please call your clinic. You will be put at the very top of that list. So what happens to what happens to the people who don't get vaccinated? I mean, what is the long-term um, run of the disease? You know, how does it get to... Um, where we as a community get back to a, a safe level if there's 20, 25% of the population doesn't get the vaccination? Hmm. Um, well, I mean, the, yeah, you're right. To have true herd immunity, we need around 70 to 80% of the population to be vaccinated. Um, and of course, the the lower the number of unvaccinated people, the more potential places that the virus can, you know, infect, kind of um, propagate, potentially create new mutants, and then spread to others. But 
I mean, really, there's an excellent graphic of, you know, every time someone who could potentially be carrying the virus contacts someone, whether or not that person has immunity can stop that spread of that virus. And so um, we don't know the exact number, you know, how many people, how, how it's going to play out depending on what numbers of people in Kodiak have or have not received the vaccine. But just in the general kind of idea of how viruses work, the more potential places it can spread, the more it can keep making the rounds in the community. And if new mutants develop and they're more resistant to the vaccine, then that's going to put even those that have been vaccinated at higher risk. So again, we just encourage people to get the vaccine and the safety profiles are still excellent. The effectiveness of the vaccine um, has still shown to be excellent at the community level. And, you know, that's all really good, good news, good information for everybody. Well, I was going to add on to that, Mike. Um, we had talked a little bit just about coming back to the, the efficacy of it. Um, was this, this newer study out from Mayo Clinic this week that um, kind of, you know, we talked a lot about these numbers of, of the Moderna and the Pfizer vaccine specifically being 90 to 95% effective at preventing disease. And that's something that has been quoted a lot and was, was found in the uh, stage three trials of those vaccines. But then we also kind of wonder what is that going to look like in real life? And so Mayo Clinic did uh, a study on healthcare workers who had received the vaccine and as, as well as uh, people that live in long-term care facilities. And what they, what they found is, is um, in a pretty large, large retrospective study, they found that it's, it's about 88% effective. Um, and which is pretty darn close to that 90 to 95% effective range. And granted, I would also put that this is a higher risk population as far as more exposure um, and some in, in the case of nursing home patients, uh, you know, elderly and more vulnerable. And so um, that just adds another layer, you know, as we, as we go into this thing, you know, more evidence comes out. And um, right now the evidence is showing that the vaccine is, is very effective. And, and as Shanna pointed out, you know, uh, very safe. And um, it's not that it's without side effects, but it's it's been shown to be very, very safe. And so I think that those are two things that as we go along, I think I'm, you know, if, if that wasn't the case, then I think that we'd probably be a little bit more reserved in our enthusiasm to getting the vaccine out maybe, but, but I think that both those things continue to be true and we continue to highly endorse people get the vaccine. Which brings us back months. You know, I remember w during one show where I asked you all what it, what efficacy meant, you know, um, and I, I gather it was, it, it's a, there's a number of different terms that are being used in, in terms of efficacy and effectiveness. And my understanding of efficacy is is different than what I what I assume the result would be. I guess what I'm saying is, if something is considered 95 percent efficacy, like the early trials of the, the the Pfizer vaccine, my assumption was that five percent of the people who got it then would get infected. Um, but it turns out that that's that's really not how the numbers pan out. They, that um, it's actually much more effective than 95%, that less than, the number I got was 0.04% are the people who actually got the got infected. It's more effective than 95%. So does that make any sense to you, Diana, how they, they run the math on that? No. kind of arguing over who's going to take this one, I think, um, <laughs> silently. Um, so like, it, it is confusing, because I think that the, and, and we were even, we're, I know we're going to talk a little bit about the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, like, it, it's, it's hard, because some of these studies, the way that they're uh, studying them, they have different what we call endpoints. So what is what is the result you're looking for? And so um, the, and so when you're when you're comparing these numbers, these percentages, sometimes you're comparing apples and oranges uh, a little bit. Um, but the, the Moderna and the Pfizer vaccines were studied in, I think, pretty much the same way in the way that they were 
um, the endpoints. And so there was two things they were really looking for. And Shanna, please chime in if I get this a little bit wrong. I'm, I'm, it's been a little while since I've looked at these studies, but like, so, you know, one of the endpoints was, did somebody actually contract the disease? Like, did, did they actually um, get the disease in the time that they were studying? And so they took 50, you know, half the study they took, they didn't give the vaccine to, and half the study they took and they gave the vaccine to, and they, they were relatively similar populations. So similar in age, similar in, in health, those types of things. And, and gender, they probably divided it up in gender. And um, then they said, okay, they turned you loose to the world for three months. And then they say, okay, the, the vaccinated group, did, did less of them get infected than the group that did not get vaccinated? And indeed, that's where you see that 95% effectiveness of preventing disease. Um, the, the other thing that they studied is how many people that got it got really sick, like required hospitalization. And again, it was it was very effective. I, get, I can't remember the exact statistics, but I believe in the vaccinated group and specifically the Pfizer vaccine is that no one ended up hospitalized. I, I believe in the study that they did, um, but I, I can't remember that off the top of my head. But basically the people that got sick got sicker when they did, hadn't been vaccinated. So the vaccine was both protective against getting disease and it was protective against getting really sick from the disease. Uh, Shan, I'm not sure if you have anything to tie in there. Yeah, I agree. It is confusing, um, kind of the math on it. And exactly, uh, the most important endpoints are really how sick does a person get from the disease, exactly what Dr. Mortensen said. And, you know, that's where we're seeing these vaccines incredibly effective. And um, yeah, as far as the, the math of how they calculate it, I know there was an article in The Lancet, and I need to ref I need to brush up on it and read it, like how that all kind of plays out. But um, the bottom line is, is they are extremely, extremely effective, more than the flu vaccine, um, more than a lot of the kind of common vaccines we have. So I think that's kind of the best news in a new, brand new pandemic that we're dealing with. So if you get the vaccine, chances are really, really high that you're not going to get infected. And if you do get infected, uh, you're going to have less than catastrophic results by getting the vaccine. That's kind of the best news that we could, we've we've heard about these vaccines. But yeah. now, uh, we 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 talk about the Pfizer and the Moderna because that's what's been uh, available to us here. And now there's new news today about the Johnson and Johnson vaccine that looks like it's going to be approved at the end of the week. Um, is is there a is there an advantage to us? Uh, I know, Dr. Mortensen, you were talking a little bit before about um, having a discussion about this Johnson & Johnson vaccine and what value it could be to our community. Sure, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll take that one. Um, so I was actually just looking at, I, I am not as up-to-date um, specifically on this, but I'm just looking through some resources here. And it looks like the, the initial data is the vaccine's about 72% effective overall um, against pre preventing disease. So perhaps a little less effective than our um, mRNA vaccines that we have currently, the Pfizer and Moderna. But um, the benefits of this vaccine, and again, I have, I'm gonna have to do a little bit more research. I kind of usually, in some ways, I kind of wait until the verdict's out um, on these to give too much of an endorsement or not. But, um, uh, but with the, the benefit of this vaccine I see for someone like, like myself who works in a clinic is that its storage is much simpler. It doesn't require this super cold storage. Also, it's something that you can, um, you know, we have the flu vaccine, which we can kind of give throughout the day in the course of a clinic, you know, versus the Pfizer vaccine or the Moderna vaccine. It's like you take it out of the, the fridge or the freezer and you got four hours to use the whole thing, you know? And so it creates this, like, we have to almost have like a system in which we have a dedicated person to to just be looking after a, a dedicated schedule just for the vaccines for those particular types of vaccines. Whereas the Johnson & Johnson is not gonna have some of those, uh, you know, some of those things that make it harder to administer. Um, the other thing that's nice about the Johnson & Johnson vaccine is it's a single dose. So as opposed to coming back a second time, you can just do it all in one dose, which is, which is um, definitely convenient. Um, and then the last thing is some people do have, it, it's the Johnson & Johnson vaccine is a more um, 
the, the way it's made, it's not an mRNA vaccine. So it's, it's more of a standard approach uh, or like what a historical approach to vaccine uh, manufacturing, which some people are going to feel more comfortable with because just it's, it's not a newer technology. And we've talked at length about this on uh, this show in the past is that mRNA technology is not necessarily super new. It's been around for a while, but this is certainly its first venture into kind of more mainstream uh, treatment. And so I think there, definitely as I talk to patients, there are certain patients that are very uncomfortable with how new this technology is, and they'd rather get a vaccine that's more kind of the tried and true approach, uh, so to speak. And so I think that for certain certain patients that it's gonna be resonate with them a little bit better. So those are kind of the, the three things, the storage component and uh, convenience of that, the fact that it's a single dose, and then the fact that it's um, kind of a more traditional vaccine technology. I think that it's going to hit a, a little bit of a different crowd and fit a little different niche. Have we run into problems with uh, storage or with delivery of doses once once we've opened the box and found that people don't show up? I mean, have you had problems either with storage or with distribution of it once you once you? I mean, I know Shanna, your clinic there there was seemingly a couple of weeks ago like a call for people to come and. Uh, sit at the back of the line because you were going to anticipate that you had some extra doses to give out. Yeah, luckily, I mean, in the lower 48, other clinics have had more significant problems where they've actually lost big batches of the vaccine. Luckily, we haven't had any serious problems where we've actually lost vaccine, but we did have to go out of tier a couple times just due to wanting to not waste it. And it is a significant kind of, um, I don't know, impact in our day when we do open a vial we have to get those vaccines kind of administered in a time before they expire so yeah there is it's been a lot trickier to deal with it um so far i think kodiak's been doing pretty well in making sure that we haven't wasted any but it it could happen you know if the power goes out if the supply chain is interrupted there's a lot of things that could interfere with vaccine and cross our fingers knock on wood that that won't happen. The other really interesting thing, Pfizer just did a study to re, to study the um, stability of the vaccine at less deep, cold, ultra-cold temperatures. So they actually just requested approval from the FDA um, to have their vaccine stored. I think it was around minus 15 degrees Celsius, which is a lot more kind of a common range that normal freezers have. Um, as far as temperature goes. So that will make also it a lot easier to get the Pfizer out to more places that don't have ultra cold storage. Well, now you go ahead. Can I, can I add that? Like, I, I think that the other thing about just this, it, it's not so much that we've, I don't think that, I think Alaska, there was actually a, an article that saying Alaska has wasted less vaccine than I think any state. Um, so I think that that's, um, you know, on the fact that I think clinics are planning ahead and, and doing things, but like, um, the amount of bound power and 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 coordination that needs to take place in order to do that is is really intensive. And so, um, you know, I think that all the clinics in town who have been giving out the vaccine are running on a level that is not really a sustainable level at giving this vaccine. And it's more to do with the human resource that goes into planning, getting people scheduled. And, you know, there's there's we basically have two people in our clinic, two full time people that all their their, their total job is vaccine administration. And that's a heavy human resource toll to take. And so I think in the long term, that's where in the long term, I think something like a Johnson and Johnson vaccine where like usually when I see patients in the course of a clinic day, I'll say, hey, you're due for the flu shot. Let's give it to you. And we can give it to them that day. And something like the Johnson and Johnson vaccine is, is more capable of doing that with versus uh, you know, this, uh, like what the mRNA vaccines, where it's like, we have to plan ahead, like, okay, we have six doses, we have to give those in four hours. And so I think that there's an element of uh, just the logistics of administrating of something like this, that the Johnson & Johnson will have its place, I think, unless there's a change in how these mRNA vaccines could be stored, which is what Shanna said, which is, there may be, there may be better ways that we find out that we can do it, that maybe the vaccine can be stored with less rigidness. But at this point, we're kind of stuck with what we got. Well, there's a not only there's the internal component of the manpower necessary in your own organizations to deliver this, 
but then there's all the community members that are also involved in, you know, getting the clinic set up. There's there was 15, 20 extra people out at the 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 airport location um, to make that happen. And then there's the the whole uh, protective nature of this of having to deal with the pandemic, you know, and the protocols that you have to put into place to deliver a vaccine. And now that you, your personnel all start to get vaccinated, um, I imagine it, 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 it makes it a little bit easier to do your job because you're not so fearful of, uh, of contracting the virus, right? I mean, doesn't it, doesn't it just make the way the delivery happens a lot easier? Yeah, it is helpful to know that your your clinic crew is protected. And um, yeah, you're right. The logistics, the manpower. I mean, we've had, you know, Coast Guard, um, the EOC, firefighters, EMS, all kind of involved. And it's so cool to see the community come together and everybody be so willing to just sacrifice their extra time to make sure that Kodiak is safe. I think that's one of the incredible things about living in Kodiak. In Alaska in general, I think communities are a lot more like that. And, um, but yeah, you're right. It's not sustainable for a, the long term. And, um, we're hoping that once, you know, we can get everyone vaccinated within this year and the virus will go away. <laughs> we're also, I, I will say, I want to add, like, I, I would echo what Shannon just said. I think people have really stepped up and, and, and I think in general, like our community has responded really positively. Um, the, uh, and I, I also want to reiterate we don't begrudge the fact that we get to do it. We, we're doing this because we really believe that this is the right thing for our community to do. Uh, but certainly, um, I'm just trying to talk about some of the some of the limitations of why maybe we're doing the things we're doing with the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, like specifically, there is some logistical challenges with it. And I think that in the context of this Johnson & Johnson vaccine, kind of talking about how, you know, I, I think that there's there's pros and cons. It's probably slightly less effective, but it's so much easier to administer. So I think we're just going to have to kind of weigh those things as time goes on. Shanna, you were one. Gonna... Oh, I was just going to mention one really um, cool thing about the Johnson and Johnson. Um, it did show 66 to 72 percent effectiveness right after getting it and then 85% effectiveness at preventing hospitalizations and so far 100% effective at preventing deaths from COVID. So um, it is really, you know, it's, it was studied on different terms, but when you kind of look at it from that perspective, it is a very effective vaccine for preventing kind of the most, the things that we care most about the virus is the, the death, the morbidity and mortality. So that's some, another really good piece to, to understand. And I believe it was also started, studied with the South African variant, and it was shown to be fairly effective against that as well. So I, I think um, it, so the first vaccine, well, I don't know, there's probably studies ongoing, but it, it's, it's been studied against some of these variants, which is kind of helpful news to get to. Now, do we know, you know, we, we talked about death. That's ultimately what we're trying to present. But and the, the, the thing that, I, I think scares me the most is the long haul effect of it, it, does the vaccine, even if you got um, the disease again, though, is it going to prevent you from, because does long haul have anything to do with the amount of viral load that you have? I mean, do people have to get really sick from COVID to develop long haul uh, effects or uh, can you have a mild a mild case that eventually turns into long-term problems yeah people who get really sick from it tend to have more complications but there are definitely plenty of cases where people have had very mild forms maybe i mean asymptomatic is tricky because you know a little people wouldn't necessarily think they had anything with a little sniffle but um, even some of the asymptomatic, quote unquote, people can have long term effects from the virus. So um, I think we're going to see how much these vaccines will prevent long hauler syndrome. I haven't seen any um, information yet. And, you know, with the vaccines kind of just getting rolled out in the end of December to the general population, I think, you know, people will need to get infected and then we'll need to see kind of what their long term symptoms are after that. And we're probably just getting into that time window 
around now. Um, so that remain, that's a great question, and I think it remains to be seen um, at the population level. But hopefully, I mean, the way that it, pre, you know, it does decrease the viral load when people do get exposed to it, your immune system is ready to kind of take down that virus a lot more quickly and effectively. Um, and just kind of knowing how the science works, hopefully that does mean that it will decrease the long hauler syndrome for people. I guess what what I was kind of asking is, since you've both been dealing with patients who've had this uh, for the last six months or so, have you run into people who have long hauler symptoms? You know, that I, I, we keep anecdotally hearing about the the runner who still can't catch their breath three months later. I mean, originally the original case of COVID did they have was it mild, severe? Um, is there any correlation between what they originally had and what they're experiencing now? I, I mean, I would say that this is this is anecdotally, but um, it seems like certainly the more severe the illness someone has, the more likely they are to have ongoing symptoms going forward. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean they have to be hospitalized, though. Like, I mean, I, I think that there's definitely people that get like the really bad flu-like symptoms, and then they just kind of persistently have um issues um i definitely have one patient that has significant cognitive like it's it's definitely caused like significant cognitive dysfunction uh like since they had the the illness they've they've not really covered recovered fully um in that way which is kind of a weird a, a different one um most people it's respiratory in my respiratory or fatigue seems to be the most common in my experience with it um uh, you know, but we're still early. And the other thing is, we just don't know. Like sometimes people have weird symptoms and uh, it's like, well, you had COVID two months ago. So is that, is this tied to it or not? And I don't think we really know the answer to that. Um, and so um, it's, it's kind of a diverse picture, but in general, uh, people that get more sick tend to be more likely to have persistent symptoms going out. Like people with milder symptoms seem to get over it faster. Um, and how that trajects to viral load, I, I don't I don't really know. Uh, we don't really know that answer. But I, I think you could kind of assume that people that are more sick have a higher viral load just by the way, just virology in general. But uh, I don't think we have that, that data yet. I'm going to go back to your, your own practices now, now that you're starting to vaccinate within your population. Um, for the, the, the constant questions from people who've been vaccinated is, uh, are they free to go now? Can they go out and return to their normal life, you know? Um, and the resounding answer seems to be no, because of the possibility of trans becoming a transmitter to other populations. Um, it doesn't appear like you're going to be at any risk of getting it if you get vac vac vaccinated, but does that allow you to start to loosen up the way that you can practice within your own clinic? Or do you still have to put up the same firewalls and maintain distances and masks and um, keep yourself away from groups that you haven't been in contact with before? You know, this is a struggle. I, I think I, I don't think anybody has the right answer for this. I, I think that we're all. I think that being a little bit on the cautious side is certainly a, a, a good idea. Um, you know, at the, at this point. Um, but I, I can tell you, like, we're having meetings weekly about like what our policies are towards, you know, people that travel out of state that are our staff members, and you know, like these different. You know, we're we are as a clinic trying to figure that out, and I'm, as I'm sure most employers are. Um, how restrictive to be. And in talking to medical directors and leaders in other parts of the state, everybody's struggling with this, exactly how, how tight to keep things. Um, what I will say is, is there's, there's certain things that don't go out of style, and uh, at least not in my mind. Uh, and that is, you know, certainly continuing to wear masks in public spaces, continuing to uh, try and keep social distances. Um, you know, if you have, if you're having larger gatherings, trying to take them outside, you know, like, there's certain things that I think we still would recommend people do because we're still not out of this thing, right? And, and so I, I think that um, there is a tendency to let down our guard. And I, I think that there's there's some 
merit to that, but I think that we still have to remain so fairly vigilant on some of these things that just we should be just doing right now. I don't think it's time to totally turn loose from them. Yeah, I agree. We're still masking, you know, maintaining PPE. We still have the clinic door um, closed so people call in when they're at the clinic or need to make an appointment or, you know, we schedule them. We're still trying to schedule telemedicine. Um, I do think it is loosening. And Dr. Fauci just um, kind of spoke to this yesterday as far as the population goes that hope, you know, the CDC is going to come out with guidelines soon about kind of what, once you're vaccinated, what you can expect as a citizen. Um, but I agree that we do not want to let our guard down yet because we still have a, the majority of people unvaccinated, unprotected by natural immunity from getting the infection. And as long as those people are, you know, we're all coming into contact with each other, those people can still harbor the virus. And the more times that people get the virus, the more it has a chance to replicate, the more chance for mutants to emerge. So we still really are in this cautious window and, and um, yeah, we're getting closer, but we're not out of the woods yet. So if we're vaccinated, we could assume that we could potentially be a super spreader. Is that, I mean, is that, they're pretty much saying it, this is not a safe time, even if you've been vaccinated, to travel somewhere. That's puzzling to me, other than the fact that we don't know whether or not you could potentially catch one of these super spreading viruses or variants and pass it on to people who haven't been vaccinated somewhere else. So I think that the the big the million dollar question, probably more than millions of dollars actually, is um, is where um, what is even though like I said, eighty. 95 percent the, the the vaccine is 88 to 95 percent effective at preventing me from getting the disease um what we don't know is is if people can carry it and spread it and transmit it even though they don't actually get the disease we don't know the answer to that i think that um there's actually was another um you know this is this is not evidence-based but just kind of based on reading some of the numbers and stuff i think that it's highly likely that the vaccine decreases the rate of transmissibility. I think that's really likely, but we don't know to what degree. And so um, that's why I think that public health is is still pretty reticent to recommend like, okay, yeah, go back to travel um, because we, we don't know. You could still transmit it potentially, and, and we just don't know. Um, I, I'm thinking that we're probably going to get some answers to those questions, I'm assuming, in the next month. Uh, I, I hope so because that will make uh, certainly my job easier in trying to make recommendations for my staff and for others. But um, at this point, um, you know, I, I think that it's really clear there's still a, a, a very distinct possibility we could get another surge in this country with these variants. And so I think that being cautious right now until we have more evidence, until we get more people vaccinated, and that will kind of give us hopefully more time and and then we won't see another surge. And that, that, that's, I think, why public health is, is reticent to like just turn people loose is because of those, those factors. Okay, so for what, for what we know that's going to be available to us now, are, we still haven't gotten through the 50-year-old the uh, tier with compromised conditions and medical thing that was opened last week. Um, so when are we going to anticipate that that segment is going to be filled and the new tier would open? Do you have any idea when that's going to happen? Um, so I, I, the answer is I don't know. Um, but uh, um, the I think that I actually got a response uh, from uh, uh, Jason, who's kind of the head of this uh, group that's coordinating vaccine administration locally. And he does not have a clear number of people that have been vaccinated in Kodiak right now because, again, because there's so many different avenues by which it's being given. Um, and it's, it's so I, I, I don't know that uh, right now, um, how many more. Um, I can say that I don't think we've vaccinated all the people that are eligible. Like, I, I know for sure we haven't vaccinated everybody who's eligible for it. Um, the question's going to be, I think there's going to be a little bit of a lull here because um, I think most of the clinics that had the vaccine are now out of it until next, the, you know, March, our March allotment. So I think this week's going to be a little bit of a quieter week on the vaccine front, at least if, if it certainly will be for us at the clinic. And I think that most uh, 
uh, the clinics are feeling that way. Um, so the question is whether they open up the tier this next week before we get our next allotment. And so um, I don't have the answers to that um, at this point in time. I know that there's people that are researching that and, and gonna make those decisions from the statewide perspective. So the people that aren't eligible right now, the best thing they can do is just call and put themselves on a waiting list and see whether or not something eventually opens up for them. Yeah, and unless you're a patient at Canna, if you're if you are a patient at Kodiak Area Native Association, um, they um, like we talked about last week, they have a different allotment. It's through the Indian Health Service, and they can kind of choose to give that to who they choose. And so I, I think that um, if you are a patient at Canna, then um, that would be an option for you. Uh, I have a question from uh, somebody about mammograms in relation to the vaccine um, that can, can you, do if you know what I'm talking about, is it, is it a recommendation now that women that are scheduled for a mammogram or already had one shouldn't take a vaccine for a while? Yeah, that is the current recommendation. Um, so what has been being discovered as people have gotten mammograms after the vaccine is that they have um, increased lymph nodes, which is the lymph nodes are basically, I think of lymph nodes as like the military bases where all of your immune system is kind of rallying to fight off some invading pathogen. And so lymph nodes that are normally, you know, quiet or just like inactive military bases are basically revved up and a lot of activity is happening. So what is being seen on the mammograms is increased lymph node activity um, in the axillary, the armpit lymph nodes, which are the ones that are kind of the first where if breast cancer also your your immune system kind of activates in that same way and goes to those lymph nodes to kind of fight off this these cells that aren't supposed to be there. They're not recognized as self. So um, as mammograms have been done, they've been realizing that within the, a few weeks after getting the vaccine, there is increased lymph nodes. And that, because that is also a sign of breast cancer, um, they're, rec they're recommending that people hold off either the vaccine or the mammogram um, within, right now it's several, a few to several weeks of each other. I don't know if we know the exact time frame when you can get that mammogram after you've had your vaccine. I would say right now, wait one to two months. But if you did, if you do have a mammogram scheduled or it's gotten done and there's, you know, increased lymph node activity, then they say you can just repeat that in two to three months to make sure that that they've gone, those um, lymph nodes have gone back to normal. And then, of course, if they're still there, then you would look more closely for breast cancer. So if it, how big is the group of people who are not being recommended to get the vaccine? So are pregnant women now are being recommended to get the vaccine, even though that wasn't part of the clinical trials when they first ran them, right? But now they're saying the benefit analysis is, uh, it, it, this is a good idea for you to get it, even though they weren't part of the test groups. Yeah, ACOG has said that um, they recommend, it's kind of a neutral recommendation at this point. It's not totally positive and it's definitely not negative against, you know, getting the vaccine. It's kind of, they're saying the safety wasn't looked at during the study, but from all the safety data we have and knowing that this is going to protect women who are pregnant from COVID virus itself, um, that it, you know, they reckon, they say it is okay to get it. There's not a, a strong recommendation. Well, there might be as of, you know, the last week or so that I haven't seen um, a strong recommendation for pregnant women to get it. Um, but until the data's out, I think there, it's more of a kind of, we think it's safe and we want people to be protected. Um, so, but the number, the pool of people, I don't know the exact number of, you know, who shouldn't get the vaccine at this point. I mean, even if you are, you know, in the screening range for breast cancer, um, I don't think that it's a recommendation to not get the vaccine. It's just making sure that you're not getting the vaccine and a mammogram at the same time. The, there's the if you've gotten a, a vaccine of any other type, they tell you don't wait three weeks or so beforehand to, and to get it. If you got a flu vaccine, you shouldn't take this the vaccine at the same time. Um, but wh what what about the population that's immunocompromised in the first place? I mean, what's available to them, and why is it that the vaccine doesn't work for those folks? 
Well, um, I'm, I'm going to try and get to your question. Like, I'm not sure you might have to clarify a little bit, but so I actually have a big part of my practice is oncologic patients that are undergoing chemotherapy. And um, so I've spoken to the oncologists up in Anchorage quite extensively about what their recommendations are on giving the vaccine. Um, and, and, and by and large, uh, you know, they recommend it. They, they recommend that, that patients even actively undergoing chemotherapy get the vaccine. And it, it's possible they may not have as good of an immune response because their immune system is compromised by the chemotherapy that they're getting. So they may not develop the same antibody response that a healthy person with a normal immune system might. But some protection is better than none because they're also, because of their immune system, they're more likely to get very sick from COVID. And so um, the one exception to, uh, to this that, that I uh, was, was told about just actually this past week is someone who just recently had a transplant. They don't, they're not recommending it six months after a transplant, but after six months, you could get it if, if you're over six months after a transplant. But that's, that's one condition that they're really recommending against getting the vaccine um, in that group. But um, people that are immunocompromised for other reasons, uh, whether it be because they're, they're uh, on chemotherapy or they have an autoimmune condition that they're on a, a medicine that, that makes their immune system less robust, um, those folks, you know, in talking to the, the specialists in those fields and looking at the kind of the guidelines, they're still recommending they get the vaccine. Interesting. I got a big question from last week that I'm going to just toss out to you and let you chew on. Um, how do we maintain herd immunity and get past another surge in infections with all of the misinformation and mistrust that exists? You know, I, I think that um, Shanna and and, uh, and Evan and, and I, you know, a big part of our practice is is getting people vaccinated. As, as, as primary care providers, this is not the only vaccine we give, right? Like we, we talk to people about the flu vaccine. We talk to them about, you know, childhood vaccines for younger kids and adult vaccines for, you know, our elderly. And, and so I, I think that um, this conversation is something that we're – pretty well versed in having conversations with people that are people with vaccines. And so what I've been interested in is I, I think this initial rush to get the vaccine, you know, there's going to be this initial rush. But once we get to a certain level, getting the herd immunity is going to be, you know, harder once because once we get to a certain level, it's going to require basically a provider and a patient to see each other and to have that conversation and to come to a conclusion on what they're going to do. And what I've seen is that there's a lot of people that come to my office. In fact, on Monday I was in clinic and I had three patients that were skeptical. They didn't want to just jump in and get it. They wanted to talk to me first. And so I think that there's a lot of people probably out there that are waiting for like, you know, I'll wait until I see my provider and, and get the vaccine. And, and on that note, I would encourage you if, if you're someone who is eligible for the vaccine, but has questions and make that appointment, you know, um, make that appointment, get in to see your provider, um, chat with them about it, about your individual medical needs, and also about your individual, you know, concerns and, and questions about the vaccine. Because, you know, this format is great. I, I love talking on this format. But the fact is, there's a lot of patients out there that don't know who I am, and they don't necessarily have trust with me. They might have trust with their individual provider, though. And I think that that's, that's where we need to get people is if you're skeptical, or you have questions, then, then please, Go to a, see a provider and 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 talk to them about those questions because maybe it's right. Maybe I don't. I'm not 100 effective at talking every single patient of mine into getting the vaccine, and that neither is that necessarily. That's not a failure. That just means that some people have very valid concerns. Um, and uh, but I think that a lot of times people just need someone to talk to that they trust that they feel like is is a good is an authority on the source. So. Well. What are we going to do eventually for the 15 and younger population? I mean, how do they get included in this if they're not eligible to get a vaccine as of yet? Studies are being done right now on pediatric patients for these vaccines. So um, it'll probably, the projected timeline I read last night was late 2021 that we might have some good clinical data from the pediatric studies. 
Um, hopefully, one pediatrician at one of the children's hospitals in the lower 48 said, if we're lucky, 2021. Um, but they, of course, you know, we think about how the virus affects children and kind of the risks versus benefits and, um, you know, also for the broader community as well, because they can be transmitters even if they don't get very sick from it. So it's really going to be, um, hopefully we'll, in the next year, I think we will know about a vaccine for the younger children. That makes it kind of tough, though, to reach herd immunity if you're, you know, taking 20% of the population out of the the people who get vaccinated. So you're you're kind of hoping that they, they get a mild case and that gets us closer to herd herb, to herd immunity, doesn't it? I mean, um, yeah, I mean, I think that it's, it's a big, it's, it's actually one of my plugs for um, adults getting vaccinated um, is, is that, um, you know, we can protect our most vulnerable, right? By, you know, I think that overall, most people 65 and older will be like, yeah, this is a, this is a threat to me. But, you know, our younger adults, when we get to those, when we get to the level where we're vaccinating younger adults, this is my push for them is that, hey, if, if we don't get a significant amount of our younger adults vaccinated, we're not going to get the herd immunity. And we can't, it's going to be harder for schools um, and things like that, because we're not likely going to get a significant amount of school-aged children vaccinated by the time school starts next year. Just like Shanna said, I don't think these results are going to be in, that we're going to get those vac vaccines in in that amount of time. So then it's going to be imperative for the age groups that are eligible to, to have high rates of vaccination. And so I think it's just a plug for just kind of be being community minded and realizing that um, even if it's maybe not like I'm very low risk to get severe disease. So I'm not, you know, but but realizing that your decisions are affecting the whole community in that way. Well, I think that'll wrap up this week. Uh, great discussion. Thanks a lot. Uh, good, good luck in the week to come. And we'll probably talk a little bit more about some more variants uh, with new information seemingly coming out daily on variants uh, for next week. If you have a question, uh, be sure to shoot us an email or give us a call, and we'd love to have the doctors talking about it next week. So you guys have a great week. Thanks, you too. All right. Thanks for your time. Appreciate it.